Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Andrew Krause. I'm one of the co-founders here at InventRight. We're going to do a full hour of Q&A on licensing so you can sell your ideas to large companies. If you guys could type in yes into the chat box so you can hear me, that would be great. Every once in a while I have a problem with my mic, so I'm just going to page down to the bottom and uh, wait for somebody to type yes. Okay, great. Excellent. Fantastic. Um, Sometimes I, maybe my audio is better with the headset, but I think it's plenty good like this. So I think we should be good. Um, so what are we talking about here at InventRight? What we do at InventRight is licensing. So you basically rent your idea because licensing isn't selling your idea. It's not selling your patent. It's renting your idea to a large company. And you're going to want them to hang on to it for as long as they want, as long as they're paying you royalties that you find acceptable and that's all going to be covered in something called a licensing agreement. Um, but don't ever say, I want to sell you my patent or I want to sell you my invention. Um, you're, but you want to license it because then they're going to do, they're going to risk all their money. They're going to use their workforce and they're going to use their existing distribution. So you don't need to start a business. You don't need to hire employees. You don't need to raise money. So licensing is a beautiful thing. But people don't know how to go about that. So that's what we teach you here at InventRight. So during these hour-long Q&As, I will answer your guys' questions. Now, of course, you're typing in the question into the chat. I don't have all the information. I can't see your product and do not disclose anything publicly, um, of course, that you haven't already priorly, prior disclosed publicly. Um, also, a little disclaimer, anything I share with you tonight should not be considered legal advice. Please consult an attorney if you're looking for legal advice. So that's pretty much it. Let's just jump in here. And let's talk about licensing. and and earning you guys some royalties and getting you in the game. So Waleed, who is a regular here, said, Hi, Andrew. I sent my sell sheet to the business development manager of a company, and she replied, We are not interested in pursuing a strategic discussion about your technology at this time. Can I send another business development manager in the same company? Send it to another one. So in this case, I would say no. You know, initially... It's okay to reach out to three, four, five, even 10, or if it's, let's say it's a really big company, 15 people on LinkedIn, for example, or via email. And you want to say, you know, would you be the right person or can you direct me to the right person that I can talk to? So, um, but this business development manager, normally I say reach out to marketing managers, you know, business development. I don't know if they were the right title, but if you felt like you were reaching out to the right type of person, Waleed, and they said they saw your product and they said, no, now there's a big difference between if they didn't see what your product was and they're basically saying, no, we are not interested in pursuing or taking a look at your technology. That's different than, oh, I sent it to you. They looked at it and they said, we're not interested in pursuing it. So if you had sent it to them and they said, we're not interested, and let's say it's a giant company and maybe they were just busy, you could potentially send to another person in the company and they might say, oh yeah, send me your sell sheet, send me your video, I'll take a look at it. And you have to actually have an opportunity for them to look at the product. Now, if they looked at the product and they said, no, you should really move on to another, another company, you know? And you don't do one company at a time, guys, or most of our students, or most products, they're reaching out to 20 or 30 companies, not two or three. I think that's one of many reasons why our students are successful when other inventors aren't. But if so, it really depends 
if they saw it and said no, in that case, I'd probably move on. If they're just saying, no, we're not interested in having a discussion, but they never saw your product, you could reach out to somebody else in the company. But if they said no, and then you go in another door and then it ends up with the same person, they're like, all right, Terrific, told this person no. That starts to become, you're being a little unprofessional, you know? But if you hadn't, they hadn't seen your product, somebody else in the company may give you a, may say, oh yeah, I'll take a look at it where this person didn't, okay? Um, so Musta is, said, hi, Andrew. What is a good minimum guarantee on expected units sold and how do we calculate it? So how do we determine or negotiate the expected units sold with the licensee? So what, what Musta is talking about, he's probably been listening to us, there's something called minimum guarantees. And so when you do a licensing agreement, sometimes people go like, oh, I'm just going to sell them my patent. No, that's not the way it works. There's something called a licensing agreement and it has all these terms on you know, performance clauses, they need to pay you on this, these dates and they need to sell so much. That's what a minimum guarantee is. Minimum guarantees are usually minimums they need to pay you quarterly um, or it could be paid yearly, but they've got to hit these minimums quarterly. So that's what a minimum guarantee is. Um, so what he's saying is how do we calculate it? So is it's, when you're talking to a company, it's a very interactive pursuit and you're gathering information. So um, there's no like calculation here, guys. I mean, some companies are like, oh, we're going to put it here and put it there and get them talking, get them talking about what they're going to do with it, especially at the beginning. They'll talk with a lot of excitement and but and then you're going to squirrel away that information and then you're going to hold them to it later. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you have more discussions. Oh, we thought we'd sell it in this, these stores, but or we're going to sell it in these stores instead. And so the minimum guarantee is they're going to pay you royalties on whatever they sell. So every unit they sell, you're getting a royalty, okay? And usually you're paid those royalties quarterly every three months. Now, the minimum guarantee is something different. If they don't sell $10,000, if, if, if they don't sell 10,000 units or pay you $10,000 in royalties, whatever it is, usually let's say $10,000 in royalties a quarter, if they don't sell that much to pay you that kind of royalty, they still need to pay that to you. So let's say, let's let's put it in units. So let's say they sell, um, the minimum guarantee says they have to sell 10,000 units and pay you a royalty on it regardless, starting at this particular date. So if they sell 12,000 units, well, they'll pay you on 12,000 units. If they sell 8,000 units and the minimum guarantee for that quarter was 10,000, they still need to pay you on the 10,000, even the 2,000 they didn't sell because they sold 8,000. And the minimum guarantee is ten thousand. There's a two thousand dollar difference, so they would still need to pay you royalties, even though they didn't sell it. So, you know, companies aren't going to do that for very long. So, why do we have minimum guarantees? We have minimum guarantees to guarantee that they just don't license it and sit on it, um, and to kind of validate how serious they are. And quite often with our students, like it's a number that kind of like you can even have this discussion with them where it's like they wouldn't even want to be selling it anymore if it was that low okay or it doesn't have to be that you see you're not you're not looking at the potential volume they're like well we're in 30,000 Walmart stores and 20,000 Home Depots or whatever and and you're like oh damn if they sell one per week and then 
at, at each of these stores, then it'd be this much. And then you're like making the minimum guarantee like 90% of what you think the max they can sell. No, it's going to freak the hell, them the hell out. Um, you know, it's a small amount that they're guaranteeing to pay you regardless of what they sell. And it's a fail safe to make sure that they don't just license it and sit on it. That is not the goal of companies, by the way. Some people, oh, my invention is so great. Somebody's going to license it and just, and then just do nothing with it. And I'm like, okay, I, that's, I've never seen that, to be honest with you. Um, but you have to have an out. So I've talked to inventors outside InventRight where they did a licensing agreement. And um, I'd say, what were your minimum guarantees? And they're like, minimum what? What's that? And they're like complaining about how the company hasn't done anything with it in two years. I'm like, well, what, what were your out clauses? Do you have other out clauses? And they're like, huh? I'm like, what was in the contract? And they're like, uh, I, I, I don't know. I just signed the contract they sent me. I'm like, you signed the contract they sent you? Like, we've never had one of our students ever come to us where we're helping them through the process. First of all, there's a, a back and forth with the negotiation before you even get to a contract. So we're helping with that. But we've never gotten a contract where we're like, oh, just sign that. It's got everything that's required. Like, never. So um, don't go signing licensing agreements without terms. Now, there's alternatives to minimum guarantees. But, you know, the, the minimum guarantees are... So it's not like I'm going to tell you, well, it's exactly 20% of what they say they can sell. You need to interview a company. Forget about minimum guarantees. If you're not interviewing a company about what they're going to do with your product, which some of these inventors I've talked to that were not invent right students and hadn't been watching us and they called us up and I, I ended up talking to them. I'm like, I, I'll, I've asked some of these people, it blows my mind. You guys aren't going to do this stuff. But, and I'm like, well, where does the company sell? And they're like, oh, I, I don't know. I'm like, you did a licensing deal? You don't know where they sell? So the, the part that I'm trying to emphasize here is that a big part of licensing is interviewing the company. You're asking them at least 50% of the questions, maybe more. See, it's not like you you get interest from a company and you're just going to answer their questions. You're going to do a deal. Almost no deals will get done that way. You need to ask them as many questions as they ask you, and you need to know how to do that. And part of that is, what are you going to do with the product? Like, if you took this on, where would you place it? What do you think about this and that? Blah, blah, blah. You know? Um, so, uh, Musta, I'm not going to tell you there's a calculation there. Um, I can tell you that if you make those minimums too big, you're going to freak the company out. So they might be like, oh, you know, we could we can sell um, we can sell 100,000 of these a year. And then you're asking the minimums to be 90,000. No, no, it's more like 10,000. Just give you a perspective. Now, I'm not saying it should be 10 percent, but you want to make it a number that they can handle. And it just ensures they don't sit on it. Now, if you want to make it more so that you can get out if they're not doing as well as you expect. You can do that, but that has to happen with a lot of delicate conversations. You don't just throw these numbers out and they might be good with higher minimums, um, but you want it to basically be a number where they're like, oh yeah, we wouldn't even wanna be selling that anymore. And there's a lot of ways that you handle that going back and forth. Um, it's a very, talking to companies and doing deals is a very interactive process. That's why our students talk to our negotiation coach, Paul, and Paul guides them through that. Um, Mike said, minimum guarantee is the payout per year for the product developer. Um, no, you, you usually the, the minimum guarantee can be either 
quarterly, every three months, or yearly. But usually royalties are paid quarterly. I really would almost never recommend getting your royalties paid yearly. And monthly is too much. Monthly is like too much work for them, guys. Like if they have to do it every three months. So the minimum guarantee could be yearly, but they're going to pay you royalties quarterly. Or the minimum guarantee could be quarterly and you get paid your royalties quarterly. Um, I was talking to a negotiation coach just last week, and he says he sees it pretty frequently that the minimum guarantee is 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 yearly. So what that gives you an opportunity to do if they're not hitting that and they don't want to pay it, that they can back out of it um, and you can, you can take it back if they don't want to pay that. Um, but yeah, so quite often it could be yearly, but royalties should be paid quarterly. Um, yearly is too, too infrequently and monthly is too often. Um, but so those are two different things. When are you paid? And what are the minimum guarantees? And what does the minimum guarantee give you a right to do? It gives you a right to take the product back. Now, only if they don't pay it. <clears throat> so <clears throat> like I said, if they sell 8,000 units, the minimum is 10,000. They need to still pay you for those 2,000 units they didn't sell. Companies don't like to do that. And something is kind of going wrong if it's happening. But maybe you have a talk with them and you work it out. Now they put it in some more channels and now the next quarter gets better and better. And so that's something to talk out when when a company doesn't meet the criteria in a licensing agreement. That doesn't mean you pull the agreement and you tell them, hey, I'm, I'm just going to pull this rug out from under you. You work with them, you know, and then if you have to, you can pull it based on the licensing agreement. Uh, let's see. Uh, I won't say what their handle is, but it's funny. It has to do with dolphins. Um, hi, Andrew. Can I cover a small collection of similar dog toys, four to six under one PPA? Do I need a separate PPA for each design? Um, so let's say let's let's use some, let's use an example here. Um, so these are three different dog toys or students of license. You got this ball and then you got this uh, chew toy which is co-branded with arm and hammer which is kind of cool and then you got this uh feeder toy where you put the dog rolls it around and gets the food out of the various uh holes where's the there's the big one right there yeah um so would it make any sense to put all three of these dog toys into the same ppa no it wouldn't. It's not the same invention. So no, you can't do that. But let's say you had this. Let's say this is yours. Aaron, one of our students, licensed this. Um, and you had variations of this. Like it, it could be done. This thing is in a circle in the center. It's a square or it has more tubes or more holes. Yeah, absolutely. You should cover all the variations of this particular thing in the same PPA. But you're not going to take you know, three or four or six completely different dog toys and throw them all into the same PPA, that's not going to, that's not a, that's not what the, how the PPA was designed. And I, I know if you're really prolific, you're like, well, but Andrew, everyone is $75. If I'm on my community, it's going to save me money, you know, but that's not, they're completely different products. Okay. So I'm not going to comment on whether or not you could do that. I wouldn't, I can tell you that if you were an event rights student, I wouldn't advise you to do that because they're, they're just completely different products, you know? Um, 
Uh, so Jeremy was saying, what do you think of uh, product hunts? So, um, yeah, I'm not going to comment on any particular companies there. But what, what I can say is we believe because we guide our students and we empower them and we tell them exactly what they need to do and say at every point so that they can at some point go, I don't need you guys anymore. I, I can do this myself because they got that real life experiential learning. Because of that, we believe that our students get to get into just about anybody. Okay, you know, like Google and Apple, like good luck. Okay, but um, there's plenty of, of very large companies that you can get into. So why do you think you need a go-between? Because you haven't experienced it, because you haven't worked on a product and reached out to 20, 30, 40 companies and go, this is doable. I'm going to use LinkedIn. I'm going to use email. I'm going to use the phone. I can get in and you know it because you've experienced it. Our students experience it and they don't go look for some feeder company or some um, portal or something like that. They don't need that. So you can go direct to your potential licensees and that's what we guide people to do. So we at InventRight do not believe in portals. We believe in going direct to the companies so you know exactly what's going on. Um, and there's a ton of invention promotion companies. Oh, we'll do it for you. We'll be your agent and stuff. And I've never met an inventor in the 23 years I've been doing InventRight and the 14 years I ran my Inventors Association in Silicon Valley that licensed the product that way. Never. What does that tell you? But every day, Dana and Sylvia, who do sales for us for our coaching program, we, we talk to somebody at least every, other, every day or every other day at the most has been taken for 10 or 12,000. The company said we would work on it. These aren't the companies you license to. These are companies inventors will help you sort of thing, which is weird because we're helping people, but we're coaching and mentoring. These other companies are saying, you don't have to do anything. We'll reach out to companies for you. I've never seen that work out, but I talk to people that are taken for, it's almost always with most of the bigger ones, it's like 10 to $12,000. And then they got nothing to show for it a year later. So you're, you know, but if you don't believe me, you know, go to the Federal Trade Commission site, go to the patent office. They warn inventors against these types of companies constantly. There's always a never ending stream of green inventors ready to be taken advantage of by invention promotion companies. Um, okay, and this next one was kind of fun. Uh, hi, Andrew, thanks for your time. I have a pillow product that has a special shape. Okay, so it's a pillow product that has a special shape as a point of difference. And the pillow cover has a unique feature that makes the pillow work. Um, I'm contacting pillow manufacturers, but should I also be reaching out to companies that could make the cover? It's a very smart question. My product needs both, and I'm not sure this works. So um, potentially, I mean, obviously a company that's making pillows and you've got this, maybe it's a stand, if it's a standard pillow, and then your pillow case is going to reshape the pillow, like you were saying, um, then that pillow company, obviously they make pillowcases and they make pillows. Okay. Most of them probably do. Maybe some just make pillows, you know, cause you can go, you can go to Bed Bath & Beyond, you can pick up the pillows and you got to buy the pillowcase separately. Um, so I would reach out to companies making pillowcases and I reach out to companies making pillows as well, because a company, if, if your product, if your pillowcase would work on a standard pillow, why would you limit yourself to companies just making pillows. You can go to the ones with pillowcases, right? Because I think there's a ton of companies that make pillowcases and sheets, but they don't make pillows, all right? So this is a classic example of, of not you, Margie, but other people will limit themselves that way. And it's like, oh my God, why are you limiting yourself that way? Um, 
Now, another great thing about your product is it's sewn. Very easy to get up and running with a sewn product. There's no tooling. It's all done by hand. Easier for them to say yes. They don't need 10 or 20K for an injection mold. So that's great. You know, so a lot of positive things about what you're doing there. But always kind of look out. And, you know, I would say also if some, somebody else is making sewn products, it doesn't have to be sheets or pillowcases or pillows, but they're making cool, somewhat innovative products and they're sewn, I would go after them too. Because it's just a new pillowcase sewn in a different way that molds a pillow to a different shape. So I would go after them too. I would go after companies, to be more specific, that are doing sewn products. And you can see they have somewhat, and it doesn't have to be super gadgety, somewhat innovative products. Well, they sew. They can make that too. Why would you limit yourself just to people making pillowcases and pillows? So that's a. I love that you gave that example because it, it allowed me to illustrate that people don't grow their list too big. Now, some people grow it too big and they're like, oh, they're making bicycle accessories. I'll go to them because they said they're open to ideas. Well, that's not what they do. They don't, you know, they don't make sewn products and they don't, you know, do this or that. And they're not in that market. So sometimes people go too far. A lot of times people go, they're too narrow with their list of potential licensees. And I just kind of showed you there how to expand it. Uh, Tony said, as always, Many thanks for volunteering your time to teach us each week. Thank you, Tony. You're very, very welcome. Appreciate it. Page down too far. Um, okay. Uh, their handle is billable hours. I wonder if they're an attorney. Um, hey, Andrew. Another Jason here. Okay. Jason's his name. Jason, the attorney. I don't know, Jason, if you're an attorney. I'm just joking. I watched every one of your live broadcasts since last Monday. Really? How many hours would that have been? Like a hundred? Okay, I don't, I'm not buying it, Jason. But thank you if you watched a bunch. Thank you, but I'm not buying you watched every hour long broadcast. But that's pretty cool if you did. Um, uh, my licensee wants to file for patents in my name and the company's name jointly. What do you think of that? So the general advice that we give our students, not even the general advice, um, we always say you always want the patent under your name. So even if the company's giving you some money as an advance on royalties, for example, and you say, hey, I'm going to use this money to protect us both, and you'll keep those same dollar amount. Let's say they give you 8000 in advance to pay for the patent, and you say, and your pitch to them is, hey, it's going to protect me, it's going to protect you. And then it's no money out of your pocket. You take that money, give it to your attorney, and then they're going to keep the first 8000 in royalties, but it's your patent and you own it, right? And the patent is under your name, and then the licensing agreement is allowing them to rent it, okay? Um, and you, we, a lot of our students do deals, and the company's like, we don't care about patents, and then they'll, the grant of license will just be on the product itself rather than on the patent. But you, so you have a patent. People get, people get confused. They're like, uh, what's the difference between a patent and a licensing agreement? It's like they're not even, that's like asking what's the difference between a frog and a tree, or a, it's, there's not even remotely the same. A patent's a patent, and a licensing agreement is a contract saying that they're going to pay you royalties under these terms, what they're supposed to do and what you're supposed to do. So the reason why you really want it under your name, and you can make an exception here, but you got to be really careful about it, is if the licensing agreement goes south, if they don't comply under the licensing agreement, you can easily pull it. You can say, well, well, first of all, you don't want to do that. You want to work with them. You know, you oh, well, you didn't meet these criteria in the licensing agreement. 
Let's talk about it. Oh, what are you doing over there? Well, could you maybe do this too? Or what are your plans? And you work with them, you work it out, right? Because you're kind of partners in a way, right? But let's say that doesn't work out at some point and you need to pull the, the licensing agreement so they can no longer sell it. Well, then you just simply send them a letter, you know, preferably from your attorney. And you say you didn't comply with these terms in the agreement and we're pulling. You usually have a period of time, usually around six months to sell off the product. Um, and so if the patent's in your name, you're just set. Now, if the patent's in your name and their name or just their name, it's a freaking nightmare to get it back because then you need to get them to reassign the patent to you. And that could be a mess, especially if it didn't end amicably for some reason. Now, I've literally never seen that happen with our students in 23 years, but our students are super professional compared to the average inventor out there. So that doesn't surprise me. And if one of our students wanted to do something or an alumni or a graduate want to do something off, like we would probably catch it by guiding them to not do that to begin with. But um, so this so for uh, Jason here, they want to put the patent in their name and his name. So um, now what you could do is if if they develop the product with you, um, then then they're technically an inventor and the patent could be assigned to you. But that's usually not the case. You know, you you developed it and the product is yours. But now you can see the reason why we heavily advise inventors do not let the company file the patent or do it jointly, that the patent is yours. This is your product. Why would you file it under their um, and their name and your name? It doesn't really make sense. So you could explain to them, no, the licensing agreement will have you covered. You're going to be able to use this patent and the product under these terms indefinitely as long as you want. Okay. Now, um, at the same time, our negotiation coach, Paul, has learned to work with companies. Like sometimes companies will, you'll say something to them and they won't like it. And then Paul will tell the student, we'll say this back to them. And it's almost the exact same thing. It's just kind of turned on its head. And they're like, oh yeah, we're okay with that. So companies, some of them aren't licensing stuff every day. Maybe they've done eight licensing deals, but that doesn't make them an expert. Um, now, if they've done like 50 licensing deals, they probably are. But so don't assume they always know what they're doing. They might make these suggestions. They think it just makes sense. But I would try to explain to them the licensing agreement will give them the right to manufacture and sell this as long as they like under the terms of the licensing agreement. But the patent is in my name, you know. Um, but would I kill a deal if they absolutely insisted and you tried every which way, like if you were a student of ours and our negotiation coach Paul was guiding you to look at all the different angles and go back and forth on this. And most of the time you can work it out, um, especially on something like this. Um, and then, but let's say you couldn't and they're still like, no, no, we're holding tight on this. But don't confuse something a company says with them holding tight. If you don't know how to go back and forth on that conversation, then, you know, you can't fix it. But if you do, you can quite often fix it. So, um, so I, I wouldn't let it kill a deal, but I don't see how it needs to. Like, I've never had one of our students that I'm aware of. I need to ask our negotiation coach, Paul, but I've never talked to him about one of these where the company's like, oh, no, if we can't put it in our name and your name together, we're, we're out. Like, I've never heard of that. And it's actually very unusual that they would ask to do that jointly. Um, I'm not saying it's unheard of, it's just unusual. So that makes me think that maybe you didn't go through all the right steps, which is fine. 
you're not going to do everything right when you need a licensing to, and that's how it kind of ended up here. Um, it might ended up there anyway, though. I don't know all the conversations you had, but generally you do not want that. You want the patent in your name, the licensing agreement, give them the rights. And if they're like, oh, okay, you know, great. And if you want to become a student, of course, we can guide you through that. Uh, Tony said, I live in California. As you know, the price for an LLC is ridiculously high. Yes, it is in California. If a deal is in the works, can an LLC be formed after royalties come in? Is that possible? I mean, can the contract be altered or amended to reflect the new LLC? Um, it kind of defeats the purpose, Tony, because the reason why we say, you know, we because in some states, an LLC is 10 bucks. In other states, it can be a thousand bucks, you know, and you got to pay fees every year. Um, I think somebody told me in California, they were waiving the fee for the first year or something. I don't know if that's true at all, but if that's true, that might be a way of doing it where they, they because so many businesses are just leaving California in droves. I heard, I don't know as a fact, that they were waiving the first year because it's been 14 years since I grew up in California, but I, 14 years since I moved. So I got a Nevada LLC, so I don't need that. But um, that they were waiving the first year. So that would be a great solution for you. You're like, oh, and then if something doesn't work out. But the reason why um, we say you should always do an LLC is you don't want to do the contract under your own name because it opens you up for more liability. Now, you're covered under their product liability insurance. If somebody sues the company, they don't even know you exist. Why would they sue you? You don't have the deep pockets. We've never had one of our students be sued by a consumer ever or even a company. Um, but for those, the fact that it could happen, you always want to do the deal under an LLC instead of um, under your own name. So doing it later or amending the contract a year later, yes, I suppose you could do that. It's a little weird because you got this contract that's with one entity and then you're changing it. Could you? Yes. The only time I would think that would make sense, Tony, let's say you're doing some, like we have students that, you know, earn, you know, uh, five digits, some earn six digits, you know, um, but let's say it's some little novelty thing and it's going to only earn like four digits. Like uh, you don't even think it's going to break $10,000. And you're like, you know, I don't even, it's just like a little gag novelty gift or something like that. And you're like, I don't want to do the LLC. I don't want the paint then maybe, but I, you're opening yourself up to some liability there. Um, but again, I've never seen it bite one of our students in the butt, but whenever we guide our students, we always say do an LLC if you're in the United States. Um, if you're overseas, it doesn't really matter because nobody's going to sue you overseas. Um, but, um, and it, by the way, everything I'm sharing with you guys today should not be considered legal advice. Please consult an attorney if you're looking for legal advice. But um, I appreciate you trying to save a few bucks, Tony. Um, maybe, I don't know what it is in Delaware. You can, you can file LLCs in other states and then you just need, um, a proxy to, to, to have like an address, like they'll, there's companies that will maintain an address for you in that state that could get kind of confusing tax wise. Then you need to research that. And it's like, Oh, geez, going down a rabbit hole here, but it was a very good question. Um, Wade Hawk said, happy Monday, everyone. Let's learn. And I noticed, Wade, your, your icon is the Hulk. Uh, over the weekend, my wife and my 10-year-old daughter, we were watching uh, uh, She-Hulk. It was, I only watched like, it's like the series. And I only watched, uh, I only watched the first episode, I think. It was, it was kind of entertaining. 
Um, we'll, we'll see. I'll keep watching it. But uh, let's see how, what else we got here. Leaf said, how would you recession impact licensing? Oh, I like this question. Um, do certain industries get hotter or colder? Also, I know it varies greatly, but what's the average order or magnitude for one year of royalties? One, 10,000, 100,000. Okay. So the first part of it is um, how would you recession impact licensing to certain industries getting colder, colder or hotter? During... So during the financial crisis of 2008, our students were licensing just as many products as before. During COVID, just as many products before. Now, during COVID, it was interesting. It was taking longer for students to close deals because the company wanted to verify with overseas manufacturers they could make it a reasonable price. So the deals were taking longer, but just as many deals were getting done. And then it was taking them longer to launch the product because of all the supply chain issues. But the deals were getting done. They were just taking longer to get done. So, um, and then uh, during COVID as well, um, you know, like the only industry that I could think of that was really affected that I was like, okay, right now I wouldn't license in was um, restaurant supplies. So obviously the supplies that restaurateurs would buy for the back kitchen, right? So I'm sure that, uh, died down quite a bit during COVID. So there's a one random exception. But what some people say to me is like, well, Andrew, you know, there's it's we're in a recession, we're going to be in a recession, which I agree. I think we're actually in a recession right now. When 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 they actually announce recessions, I watch a lot of YouTube on uh, economies and economy, economics and investing and stuff and the current state of things. Once they actually announce it, like formally, you're almost out of it. That's the way it works. So I believe we're already in a recession when Walmart's not ordering product um, because their their shelves are too stocked. When Amazon's laying off, it was it ten thousand people? I forget how many it was. We're in a freaking recession, okay? But who cares? Who cares about with regards to licensing? So 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 what? So you license um, what was it? What did I have here? You license a dog toy. Um, well, I just got a oh, anyway. Um, let's see you license these these glasses. Okay. So the company is still selling glasses, but let's say because it's a recession, you know, the company's gonna be selling like 90% of what they would normally be selling. So what? So in that year or so, let's say, let's say 2023 is a, a terrible year with the recession stuff. Are people still buying stuff? Hell yeah, they are. Um uh and so let's say their sales are 90% of what they would, and then the next year it's back to normal, okay? Why would that be a reason not to license? It's totally not. So I've never seen a reason in the 23 years we've been doing this to go, oh, red flag, maybe now's not a good time to be licensing. So that's not true. Now, that's not the specific question that Leap asked. Are there certain industries that get hotter or colder? Um yeah, there might be. You're going to need to kind of be in that industry. Like, for example, during COVID, restaurant supplies. Would I be trying to do a rent? Was anybody contacting me for restaurant supplies during COVID? No. But guess what? There was a whole ton of people doing the PPE, the personal protective equipment, like masks and other things. Oh, my God. We have so many inventors and stuff like that. So, you know, kind of evens out. Um, you know, I think if you if you look at a micro category, if you look and you see there's a ton of companies and they're selling there, like they wouldn't be there if they weren't selling, you know? So I don't think 
it's you should go with industries that you're passionate about. Um, and you should get a general idea if the industry is just like completely tanking. But it's so rare to be like restaurant supplies during COVID for anything to be that extreme. I never talked to any restaurant supply companies, but I'm assuming like why would restaurants be buying supplies if they're closed, right? Um, but that was kind of an extreme scenario. Is there some scenario like that somewhere in some industry? Probably. Um, but I, I, it's not something I'd really concern myself about unless I'm going to be working on lots of products in the same industry. Um, so, you know, you, your, your other question was about royalties. You know, like I, I show this quite often and this is a cool product. And I actually thought this was kind of niche. I was, I don't mind admitting I was wrong. So Ryan Bricker licensed this and it freezes ice at an angle there. I've showed you guys this before. You put this in the freezer, you put your water in there, you put the slice the, the um, piece of plastic in there and it freezes the ice on an angle. So you have less surface area. So your ice cubes don't melt um, in your whiskey, you know? So he, I think he's going to end up burning over a million dollars on that. Um, same thing with the gridded product where you have a series of elastic straps and pocket pockets anywhere. They have this for purses and backpacks and all sorts of stuff. Um, I mean, it's very nice and better you know, lower price point product. Um, it's just a webcam cover that kind of slides. Really cool product. This is mine for the shelf. And I told him just the other day, I'm going to buy one um, for my laptop because I thought it was cool. But lower price point product, not the same massive volume that these other two sold. So, you know, if you licensed a little gag novelty, I'll give you extremes, Okay. If you license a little gag novelty gift to a mom and pop operator where they got a few gadgets and gizmos and stuff and their distribution super limited, you know, you, you might not break six digits there. You know, it might be like five digits. It's like you might not even break 10K. And then somebody else might be earning, you know, 20, 50K. Somebody else might be earning 120K a year. But if you let's say you're earning 250K a year, well, let's say 200K a year. And it's five years. That's a million dollars over five years. So don't balk at the fact that once you plug your product into this large company, and let's say you're earning 50,000 royalties a year, and it sells for five years, that's a quarter million dollars. They took all the risk. You move forward, worked on licensing other products, doing whatever else you're doing. You didn't need to hire employees. And they were going to tap into that huge distribution they have. So, but to think that every product's going to be a million dollar product, you know, over its life or a million dollars a year, that's just delusional. Um, now, at the same time, you can think really big when you're licensing. You can think like, oh, I want to sell 100,000 these a year and you get the right big company and that's what they do. And they'll do it where if you try to start your own business and sell it yourself, you know, retailers don't want to talk to you because you're a one product company. You don't have the kind of cash flow. You don't have the distribution. You don't have 80 hour work weeks and the ability to hire all these people. So great. You were able to license it instead. So, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, most of our people like, for instance, uh, Scott, he's licensed. I don't know how many he's licensed now, 30, 40 products. And this is one of his products. These little suction cups that stick together. My daughter loves these. Um, she kept seeing it on the shelf and she made me buy her one for, for Christmas, last Christmas, actually. Um, when you license, the, the students of ours license a lot of products. It's usually going to license like extensions to the product you already licensed that's doing well. 
or you're going to reinvent the product to help keep the company on top. The product may be getting a little stale. So one of the best things you can do when you're licensing is look for opportunities to make sure to keep that product fresh, get line extensions and license more. You already have a relationship. This company's loving you because you're selling well with product number one, send them more products, but reach out to a bunch of other companies too. So any of our students that have licensed, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 products, every one of them are licensing multiple products to some of the same companies, you know, and that's where it's at. So staying in an industry is very beneficial. Uh, and the first way you make a relationship with a company is just to sell them a product. And if they say no, oh, no problem. Are you open to more? Yeah. So the way you introduce yourself, the way you have a coffee date is to send them your first product. And then maybe you start dating and then you, you know, you're sending them products pretty regularly until you license one. Maybe uh, maybe it's the fourth product you send them that they license, but you're sending it to 20, 30 other companies as well. You know, so that's the mindset. But um, there is no average. It's it's it ranges wildly on um, what the royalties end up being. Now, you can go, well, I'm you could say I'm money driven and I'm only going to work in categories that have that kind of volume. And with companies that I know can sell serious volume, you can do that if you want. But I find that most people, you know, you do love the money will come. And at the beginning, sometimes it's good to get going. But if you're if you're driven more by money than you're create, just creating and stuff and you want to be or you just want to be more business like about it. Nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing wrong. Uh, let's see. Somebody wrote a whole bunch here. Um Spinner Oz says, I have got a five-year contract offer on my Australian provisional patent, but the company is in the USA. I don't have a USA provisional patent. That's okay. The, the Australia is part of the PCT, the Patent Cooperation Treaty, so you could file a US patent. Let's see what the rest of the question is. Should I apply for a USA provisional patent first before accepting their contract? Um, as I have no sales or research guarantee from the company on my product, I don't want to tie it up for five years and nothing to happen with it in production. Okay, so we have a ton of Australian students. After the U.S., I would say I think Australia might be just as many, if not more, than even Canada. It's Canada and Australia are neck to neck. Australians are very creative, um, great folks, um, and and just, I think, uh, very, very creative. So, um, but... It's a very large country, but most of it's desert. You know, I live in the desert here. I live in uh, Henderson, Nevada, and right next to Las Vegas. And and so, and most of our, my state that I'm in, in Nevada, is just desert. And then there's a, two big cities. There's Las Vegas and Henderson, and then, um, and then Reno. And the, everything else is like just a few tiny little towns and nothing else. So that's kind of what Australia is. So you said... Um, I have a five-year contract offer my Australian provisional patent, but the company's in the USA. Okay, that doesn't surprise me. So if if Sprinter Oz, that's their handle, was just focusing on Australian companies, he probably wouldn't have this deal on the table because Australian companies um, aren't as open to outside ideas. And I would never limit yourself to your home country if it's a country like Australia or even um, some European country. Like U.S. and Canada is more open to licensing than any other countries. Now, you can, if you're in Germany, I call companies in Germany, but I would never leave out USA and Canada 
or big companies. It could be a German company, an Asian company that's really big in the U.S. That's the same as a U.S. company to me. So, um, you know, yeah, you could file it, but they're already interested. So you could just take that Australian patent and you could later file um, a utility patent. But if you want to, you could file a U.S. provisional patent. I don't know if you made public disclosure or not. If you haven't, you could file a U.S. provisional, then go straight. You could go with the PCT. Um, so, but I don't think that's a problem at all. Well, and so he's saying he's, he's worried that he says, I have no sales or research guarantee from the company on my product. Well, that's what a licensing agreement is for. So it's, and then he says, and I don't want to tie up for five years and nothing will happen with it in production. Yeah. That's because you need to interview the company. And you need to figure out what they're going to do with it. You have those discussions. Do not be shy. You need to get on a Zoom call. You need to get on the phone. You need to have talks with them and see what they're going to do with it. And don't get into agreement with them. And you're going to need to get a licensing agreement. Our negotiation coach, Paul, can help you with that if you want to sign up and have us get you some help. But you're not going to have them tie it up with nothing happening if you do the licensing agreement right. Right? Um, so there was a couple of questions within that. So that, that was cool. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, their handle is Save a G. Uh, if I've invented something in the oral care market, should I start my own company or give my idea to a company to make it true um, in the oral care market? Yeah. I mean, if you have at least two to $400,000 just to get started, that's what it would take to launch a product on any serious scale. Um, most inventors, they don't intend on, oh, I'll sell a few on Etsy or eBay or this or that. They, they get themselves in over their head. They're totally, I'm sorry, clueless about what it really takes to start a company. Then even if you start the company, retailers don't want to talk to you because you're a one product company. They want to talk to the companies that kind of companies that you would license to that might have 50 products, 800 products, thousand. I mean, one of our one of our coaches licensed the wrench to a company with over 9000 products. Retailers will not take you seriously with one product. I'm not saying some people haven't done it. They have. But when you license to that big company, you know, if you don't have at least 60 hours a week and have at least two, three hundred thousand dollars just to get barely started, you should not be venturing. And if you don't want to do the grind of running a business. Now, if you're more excited about running the business and even your product, you have that money and you're willing to dump everything else you're doing, go for it if that's what you want to do. But you have to be more excited about running the business than about the product. Excitement about your product is never enough. It will not feed you. You're going to be doing all sorts of stuff you don't want to do. Now, if you license, you don't have to do all that stuff. It's all on them. They got the work, they got accounting, marketing, sales, manufacturing. They're a machine. Let's say they have 500 products. You plug your product in, it's just one more product in their product line, right? And it's a logistics machine. So when you license to them, you are them. But if you think you're going to create all that distribution from scratch with, you know, a $10,000 investment, oh, well, but, you know, I some guy says he can make it for me. I can get 50 made here. That's like... That's, you're just giving everybody plenty of opportunity to knock you off, you know, because, you know, and then everybody will think you're the knockoff and somebody else. But when you license to a large company and they're first to market, first to market is the best form of protection. So when you license to a big company and they push it out there hard and fast, 
and they're first to market, that is better protection than any patent. So then maybe they're selling 80% of the product. There's a few knockoffs that come around. Maybe they'll send them a cease and desist. Some of them go away, some don't. The knockoffs are selling 20% and your company, you license is selling 80%. Congratulations, you're successful. Okay, so it's a brutal, brutal world out there. And when you team up and piggyback on a big guy, um, they know what they're doing and they'll protect you with their distribution, you know, not patents. I mean, I'm not saying not patents. I'm saying just saying for emphasis, I'm not saying you're not going to file a provisional patent. I'm not saying you're going to file, uh, file a patent lawyer. People overemphasize patents. That distribution with a large company, better protection than a patent a lot of the time. So every situation is unique. Not saying don't do patents. You should do a provisional patent always. Um, okay. So Margie said, how do you get the email addresses of marketing managers if they won't connect with us on LinkedIn? It seems like they don't list. Sometimes you can click on contact, but that's like a spam email they put there. So sometimes you click on contact on LinkedIn, it will give you their email. Might be their personal email, might be their work email. So sometimes you can get that. Um, but you know, you can also uh, you can also if you get on LinkedIn and you see some names like this is company X Y Z and you go this is the marketing manager, you can call and ask for it. There's also different ways you can research on the internet for it as well. Uh, prolific invention. What would be your first steps if you developed an entirely new technology? as in made an actual discovery. I'm in that position. I've made a prototype heater that is unique in function. So whenever I have people with a new technology, I always say you really have to give it a lot of thought from a marketing perspective. What are all the different applications for this technology? And then what I would usually go with is go with the lowest hanging fruit as far as licensing goes. Find the company that's going to be able to do a version of the product or if it, let's say the technology can go a lot of different products, but this one would be the easiest for them to implement and make the most sense to a consumer and be at a price point a consumer would pay. So I would go after um, the lowest hanging fruit because what you can do is you could do, let's say that technology could be applicable to 10, 15 different products. You could do that licensing deal, get them to pay for the patent, which they give you the money, you give it to your attorney, and that patent could actually cover the other versions too. Then you could go license other versions, um, your technology that would go in other products as well. So sometimes if you go after the lowest hanging fruit, the one that's easiest to license, and then get them to pay for the patent, and then go after these other potential licensees and other product categories. But whenever it's a technology, it's usually harder. And I, I find that a lot of people that work on technologies, they're more engineering oriented. And when I talk to them, I get a certain sense of cluelessness about marketing and what makes sense and being logical. And so, you know, but I think any engineer can step back and go, okay, what makes sense? I'm going to put my marketing hat on. What makes sense in the marketplace? What would be easier to implement? So, um, but usually those types of things, uh, prolific, I'll just call you prolific as your handle. Um, it's going to be harder. But if you can break it down and make it simple and make it doable to license um, and then prove that out and then show that technology is working in one area that's easier and then move it in the other areas, that, that can be a good way to go. 
Tony said, thanks for answering my question. You're welcome, Tony. Uh, da, 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 da. Have you had a student license in the bike industry, BMX, mountain bike? Yeah, we, I'm sure we've had students license. So this is just like a few things, guys. Um, so many different things. Interbike Expo was a trade show in Las Vegas. I've been to three times, I think, but it's not around anymore. That was a cool trade show. It was kind of fun. Um, so you can definitely license in the bicycle industry without a doubt. Um, I would say accessories, just as with cars, uh, accessories are going to be much easier because there's a ton of companies out there. They're easier to approach. If you're trying to license something to like specialize or a major bike company, that's always going to be harder. But it's that's definitely doable, too. And it's not as hard as the car business. Car business, you should stick to automotive aftermarket to tell a car company you should put this coming off the line. You you just going to be beating your head up against a brick wall. You know, but if there was a contract manufacturer that make windshields for GM or something and you that's that's them putting on the windshield, by the way, that's the machine. I was a machine. I'm being silly. But if you there was a company that did contract manufacturing for General Motors and you could approach them, they would be more approachable than General Motors. Just brutal to try to talk to a car company. But we had a, a it's not here, of course, it wouldn't fit on the shelf. But we had a student of ours license a, a new type of Jeep door. And it was just, um, you know, when like people that are serious about off-roading, sometimes people will put those nets, sometimes people will take the door off. This was like something in between. It was like a bar and it was an aftermarket product. Automotive aftermarket's great. But even if you needed a license to a bicycle company, um, they're going to be approachable where the major automotive companies are pretty, pretty impossible. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a perfectly good category to be in. Um, lots of stuff to do there, lots of companies. So yeah, I don't see, I lost my place here. Um, let's see, Mosh, Mohison, Mohison. Okay. Uh, hi, Andrew. I have an idea of a product, however, I'm not sure how to create it. Any advice on how I can create a visual and physical prototype to a product, please? So I would say for about 85% of our students, our coaching students that we coach and mentor, we include a cell sheet and a virtual prototype. And about 85% of our students do the virtual prototype. So I would go with the virtual prototype. Um, quite often, it, you know, you're a creative person, but you're like, I don't know how to make a prototype. Or if you can, sometimes you can get stuff at the store. You can cannibalize it, cut two things, put it together, put duct tape, glue on it. It's like prove it to yourself. But a lot of times you don't need to do that. You're just like, I know it's going to work. I just can't make the prototype. So in that case, do a 3D prototype. And when they ask you how it's going, well, you're going to do this and that. And they're like, oh, okay, we get it. So don't think that you can't license a product without a patent. That's BS. Don't think you can't license a product without a prototype. With the patent thing, you can get a provisional patent for 75 bucks. We have some smart IP software on our website at inventright.com. You can get to do that. And for the prototype thing, a virtual prototype is quite often sufficient. I'm not saying you would never want to, sorry, my nose is all itchy. I'm not saying you would never want to make a prototype. Of course, prototypes can be fun. You can learn something by making them. But sometimes it's just like obvious how it'd be made. And it's like, you're just wasting your time by making it. And you're definitely hurting yourself if you thought you had to have one in order to license, like they wouldn't take you seriously. That is not true. Because what you're doing is you're selling the benefit of your products. So if you have a marketing piece and you got your virtual prototype in there, and that's what it's going to look like. 
And now they see the marketing, they see the product, they go, oh yeah, I think my customers want this. It's not about the prototype, okay? You're not selling a patent, you're not selling a prototype. You're selling the benefit of your product. That's something we've been saying in right for the last 23 years. Um, okay, so uh, let's see. Hello, Andrew. Is it the standard for licensing agreements to include an initial fee? Is it possible to make companies pay for patents from this fee? Thank you for everything. So um, I like a small amount of upfront money. One of the biggest mistakes inventors make, and we don't let our students do this, but when I say don't let, we don't let them piss the company off and kill the deal. We, we guide them to do the right thing. Asking for a large amount of upfront money is called top loading the deal. So imagine this. So they're spending tens or God knows, you know, 10, 20, $30,000, whatever it costs to launch that particular product. They're getting all their, their teams, their marketing team, their sales team, everybody, they're launching this product. They're doing tons of work. They haven't made a penny yet. And you're asking for a large amount of upfront money, upfront money doesn't sit, oh, but Andrew, the company's really big. They can afford it. This is a great idea. Bullshit. That's, that's not the way you should be thinking. You want to backload the deal. As they make money, you get paid, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that you can't get some upfront money, as I talked about earlier, as an advance on royalties to pay for the patent, okay? That's really common. So let's say, let's say you got a very competent independent practitioner, patent attorney, and they would do it for 8,000, and you tell the company that. And sometimes they're thinking like 20, and they're like, oh, yeah, we can do that. Well, it's going to protect you. It's going to protect me. And... You know, if you give me an advance on royalties, I'll use that to pay the patent attorney. And then you're going to keep the first 8000 in royalties. That's called an advance on royalties. Um, and so sometimes they argue that. Sometimes they don't want to do that. But then they'll agree to, let's say, a $5,000 advance. Well, you take the 5000 you make up the other 3000 Every deal is different. Um, but, yeah, it's very doable. And I do like getting a couple grand. And, and guys, I'm talking like on a product that you're earning... $150,000 a year in royalties on, we're over five years, what would that be? Um, you know, that would be, I'm, I'm just making an example. It's it three quarter of a million dollars. Um, so let's say that's the product. And if you asked for $20,000 up front, that could kill the deal. Does that give you some perspective? So I don't care how big the deal is. I don't care how big the company is. They don't want to pay that up front. Now, a small amount, a good faith agreement, yes, and the contract's going to stipulate that they need to perform. Otherwise, you can take it back. So absolutely, you can get an advance on royalties, and you can use that to pay for the patent if they don't want to pay for the patent. But if you pitch them to pay for the patent, quite often they like that. They're like, oh, he's just asking for money. He's going to use that to protect us and him. But sometimes they'll fight that, and then you could just ask for an advance, and they'll give it to you quite often, not always. Um, but And then... You can use that money to pay for the patent too. So, um, and all the meanwhile, you've just spent seventy-five bucks on a provisional. So that's that's great. That's reducing your financial risk. People, inventors, quite often they get a false sense of moving forward by throwing money at their invention, patents, prototypes, all that. And a lot of it usually involves not no work on their part, and they they feel like they're moving forward and they're really making a mistake. Now, it really depends on the product, but most of the time they are. Um, let's see. See what else we got here. See if we can find somebody. You're welcome, Leaf. You're welcome, Sprinter Oz. 
everybody else too. Okay, let's see if we can find somebody new here. We, we hit the hour, but uh, we could do one last one. Um, okay, Jagpreet, let's do that one. Is it possible to make $10,000 a month from a licensing deal? Thank you for all that you do. Um, yes, it's very possible, but as I said earlier in the stream, not everybody might have been here, getting paid royalties monthly is is unheard of. Um, I do have, I think, two people I know that did that. Usually getting paid your royalties quarterly. So if it's quarterly, that's every three months. So the question should be, is it realistic to get $30,000 a quarter? What would that be? That'd be $120,000 a year, right? Yes, that's very realistic. It depends on the product. Sometimes you don't know. Like I, I thought, I thought Ryan's product, this 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 uh, whiskey wedge. I thought it was kind of niche. I'm like, you totally gonna license that dude. That's really cool. But and and I think he's gonna end up earning ex- way more money than I thought. So you just don't always know. So to set this dollar amount in your head, that's just gonna mess with you. Focus on licensing the freaking product. But if you're money motivated. Don't work on a product that you know is never going to add up. But yeah, making 120K on a licensing deal, that's very feasible. Some of our students hit that, some of them they don't. Uh, but let's, let's, let's say you're earning $50,000 a year and it sells for five years. That's a quarter million dollars. So don't we, we're in a society, at least in the United States here, some of you guys are elsewhere, but people that think they need to be a millionaire overnight. And these are just shysters selling like their get rich quick courses and crap. We don't do that. So, you know, to earn $50,000 a year in royalties, and then let's say it sells for five years, not all products do, and that's a quarter million dollars, and you're able to move on to other products, you keep your day job, they're taking all the risk, that's a beautiful thing. Licensing is a beautiful thing, guys, it really is. You should really be excited about it. But don't think you're going to get rich off of one product. Do some people? Yes, but... You know, what if you get rich off of two or three products? You're not one trick ponies, maybe four or five products, you know, and, and the money comes in over time. That could that that's a perfectly good thing, too. You know, so oh, we got a spammer here. Oh, no big deal. Um, all right, guys. Uh, I've got to let's see. So if you guys want to reach out, so we got some people asking questions about the program and stuff. Reach out. Nino, um, go to inventright.com. I'll type it in here, www.inventright.com. And click on contact us and you can talk to Sylvia or Dana about we can help, Nino. So you're welcome to do that and anybody else too. Also, um, click on our free resources. If you go to our homepage, there's a free resources button. Hey, check out our free resources. Um, That's definitely worth it. And then give give me a thumbs up if you appreciated me spending an entire hour answering your questions. Give me a thumbs up on this video. Subscribe. Click on the notification button. I'd really That's the way you can say thank you to me um, for all of you. Whether I answered one of your questions or I didn't, that's the way you can say thank you to me. And watch more of our videos. Give us a thumbs up. Interact. Ask questions on the videos. We're here to support and mentor you. And if you're interested in the coaching, guidance, and mentoring, um, then go to the contact page on inventright.com. I'm going to take uh, take a hike, guys. I, I'm just exhausted. I had a really long day. I hope you guys have a fantastic evening. And I will be back here. We got in the States, you know, some of you are international, but we got uh, Thanksgiving here. But I will be back on Monday with another Q&A. And um, keep the faith, guys.
coming up with ideas is part of who you are. You've got to do this. You've got to work on the boring part of business side of licensing. You can't just come up with ideas. You got to work on them. We're here to empower you. So take care, everybody, and keep inventing. See you guys. Bye.